One of the things I really love about Whitehead is this emphasis on his thesis as the basis from which we do our philosophy and the thing that our philosophy is about. You know, our philosophy is not about final ultimate truths, right? It's, it's about the evocation of intensities, I think Whitehead used somewhere, which, which I really love. Welcome to Conversations in Process, a podcast from the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. I'm Jared Morningstar, Operations Assistant at the Cobb Institute, co-hosting today along with Jay McDaniel, the chair of the board at the Cobb Institute. In this episode of the podcast, we talk with Kazi Adi Shakti about her interesting and provocative essay, Buddhism is Basically Useless. Kazi is an artist and theorist whose theoretical work primarily consists in the study and creative synthesis of process thought, Madhyamaka Buddhism, Western Marxism, and ecofeminist ethics. Kazi graduated with a BFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art, where she majored in interdisciplinary sculpture with a focus on computer modeling, 3D scanning, and digital fabrication. She currently works as a scanning specialist and digital artist in the 3D digitization industry. In this conversation, Kazi shares her intent behind writing this fascinating essay, Buddhism is Basically Useless. She talks about what what it means for Buddhism to be useless from her perspective and why this is actually very Buddhist uh, in a sense, uh, and works to counteract some of the, the negative trends we, we see in modern religious affiliation. She also talks about three different ways of touching yourself that she explores in this essay and how there's a, a continuity between the very physical understanding of this idea all the way up to self-reflexive gnosis. So very interesting ideas abound. Uh, and of course, uh, Jay and Kazi especially talk about connections with process thought uh, in the latter half of this conversation. All right, here's the discussion. Would you just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and how you learned so much about so many things? Yeah, so I guess my background, I'm pretty much an artist predominantly, like first, first and foremost, I went to school for art. Um, I studied a lot of different things, but I ended up uh, finalizing in sculptural practice, particularly with digital fabrication. So using computers and 3D printers and stuff like that. But I've always had an interest in spirituality and philosophy and theory, particularly because theory has a lot of purchase in, in art school um, and a lot of currency. I use these economic terms you know, consciously because it actually does leave a sour taste in my mouth in, in terms of the uh, the, the pretentiousness of uh, the way people in art school might use theory, but all to say there's a lot of theory going on in, in art school. So, and naturally I, I did a lot of that too. And eventually um, along with my art major, I also did a humanities uh, minor, which is sort of this open-ended minor where based in the humanities department at school, sort of secondary to your art thesis, of course, because it's not a philosophy school. And I sort of did it an unconventional kind of thesis for that um, where <laughs> I didn't really make a thesis at all. I just sort of had a uh, what I call an open-ended thesis that sort of more so lays out a foundation for sort of basically analyzing, you know, why why are we here in this ecological crisis, in this present global crisis, and what are all the different intersecting problems, and how do they all relate to each other on different levels of understanding, from personal to 
interpersonal to transpersonal, social, ecological, economic, and you know, all the way to the cosmological. So this sort of big overview picture. And that's where a lot of my interest in, in Whitehead actually started because I found his process relational view of things mm. incredibly, you know, incredibly interesting, but also clarifying in, in how things actually seem to operate. And I've for a long time I've always had this sort of interest in the relationship between contrasting oppositions and the places in which they disappear as oppositions and the places in which the tension is productive. And so I found Whitehead working exactly mm-hmm. with that sentiment, particularly with, you know, the sort of, I guess, um, if we can generally think about it in terms of the, sort of the mind-body split that mm-hmm. that we sort of see iterated over and over again through, you know, Western thinking and modes of practice. But I also didn't want to focus too much philosophically, but also, you know, historically and concretely. So so the Marxist tradition also um, informs, informed a great deal of my, my thinking. And, so, and then Nagarjuna and Madhyamaka in particular are the kind of meta-conceptual framework of how to even understand the role of concepts. So I don't accidentally reify them in, in my project of analysis. So these three sort of major figures, as well as the fourth one, a kind of eco-feminist perspective. Mm-hmm. So eco-feminism, Whiteheadian process thought, Marxian political mm-hmm. economy, and, and then Madhyamaka, all sort of mm-hmm. a way for me to um, try to understand why we are where we are and you know where the direction is to go from here. And my artistic practice sort of worked on experimentally with a kind of relationship between digital um, fabrication and representation of like organic life. So a lot of my work consisted of 3D scanning and 3D modeling plants and 3D printing them and Mm. arranging them in installation as as a way to think about this sort of relationship and tension between culture and nature and you know technical abstraction um versus the concrete living thing and you know in the relationship between two i'm sorry that was a lot but that's sort of my sort of practical theoretical background i looked at you know i've been studying your website a little bit uh, and enjoying every bit of it and thank you really really i i really like buddhism is basically useless and we'll talk about that but but i really (laughs) want to get into some of your other essays too and i I looked at yeah. the home page and, and the notion of is it holopoiesis? Is that yes. how you mm-hmm. I love holopoiesis. that. And I love the way you distinguish that from what is other poesis and then what's the in self-poesis? Is that right? Yes. Um autopoiesis and allopoiesis. Autopoiesis and allopoiesis, yeah. Yes. yeah. So very good. And I tell you, holopoiesis sure sounded a lot sure sounded a lot like Whitehead's idea of concrescence. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, I'm very influenced by Whitehead, definitely. I will say that um, I spent, uh, I guess, two years in school sort of studying Whitehead along with the other stuff. And I wasn't able to go super deep into process and reality because it's a bit of a monster. But I extensively drew from um, Donald Sherburn's uh, key mm-hmm. to process yeah. and Whitehead, uh, reality. And it's you know, very legible and very elucidating. But since then, um, I've gotten, ever since I've gotten deeper into my Buddhist practice, I've just been in a Buddhist rabbit hole for the last like five years. So is it, is it uh, Tibetan Buddhism, Kazi? Yeah, so I practice under the Dzogchen lineage of um, Chogyal Namkai Narbu. Mm-hmm. Now I, he he's um, a late guru, but he um, he's a teacher of my teacher Malcolm Smith, and so that's sort of where my practice is based on. Um, some some Vajrayana, but all basically in the context of Dzogchen. Good, yeah. I'm a Zen guy, and I I was the English teacher for a Zen priest from Japan. 
many years ago, and we became close friends, and he he became a Zen master. But we were very, very close um, for many years. He's passed away now, but... um, I I will say real quickly, um, while I haven't really dug a lot into Eastern and sort of Upper Eastern Buddhism, uh, you know, Chan and Zen, only because I'm I'm trying to understand my own own tradition, um, I will say from everything I've I've been studying um, and and sort of experiencing, it does seem like Zog Chan, at least, has more more relevance and and, and, uh, sort of similarities to Zen than arguably the Indo-Tibetan tradition that it's, you know, sort of in, which is very interesting. Every other path is very like gradual based um, in a sort of step-by-step sort of um, idea with a lot of analysis. Not that Dzogchen doesn't have this, but the sort of more direct, non-conceptual, immediate emphasis. I think Zen and Dzogchen seem to um, share a lot in common. I sense that from the Zen side as well. I always hear an affinity there. But Jared, tell us, uh, what would you like to bring to this conversation? You you shared with me, you can share with Ozzy as well. Yeah, so I, I have some ideas of, of how we could kind of unpack this essay together and, and explore some other related sorts of uh, more, more broader themes of, of some of your work here. So, so maybe to start, would you just want to tell us a little bit about this essay that uh, you've written? Buddhism is basically useless. Uh, where, where did the ideas come from? Uh, how, how did you uh, find the inspiration for this? Was there something you were trying to respond to in, in particular with this work? Yeah, so I can actually start with the title, actually. So before I met my current teacher, I was sort of practicing along with the uh, Shambhala tradition of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and they've, they've been having a pretty big controversy lately. I don't know if you guys heard, but that's besides the point. But when I when I first started studying with them, they had this concept of what they called basic goodness. And later on, I basically you know understood that to be you know, their word for uh, Buddha nature, basically. It basically functioned the same way. They weren't really explicit at first about this. And I also joined them when I was very early on into my path. So I was still absorbing a lot of things too. But at that time, I also sort of, in, in, in um, sort of experiencing in, in my own practice, um, a, a sense of complexity in, in what I was experiencing that had a basic goodness in it, but there's also senses of longing right and a sense of wanting to uh, long which which now i see is a kind of like a i guess is a sense of goodness because now i recognize it as, as something akin to bodhicitta the sense of longing to be with others in a sense but i guess like just the idea of characterizing it as as good rather rather than bad you know so whenever i whenever i see it one term um, emphasized i'm always my mind just instinctively goes well what's wrong with the opposite side and why does this have this one-sided characterization and i would always keep thinking about this as well and then uh, and then in my own experience understanding buddha nature as being basically good but also having the potential to also move into ignorance you know it's there's this, this dual potential that uh, where, where our the nature of our of our mind has this capacity to go in these two different directions in either ignorance or awakening and part of what is i think realized with the full expression of our buddha nature especially in, in sort of the experience of emptiness right is this this sense that there is nothing there to grasp onto as a basis for the ground path and fruit of our whole practice because everything is fundamentally empty. And so for me, Buddhism is basically useless 
is also equivalent to saying Buddhism is basically good. It, they're, they're both referring to the same meaning, but I like the poetic use of isolating one just for the, you know, for an aesthetic purpose, I guess. And um, that, that's a lot of what I was trying to do with this essay, not just a theory piece, but also kind of a, a like a creative piece where I'm trying to use language which appears to be very negative, but which is trying to point to something that's actually seemingly the opposite. Basically useless is like my version of basically good. And, and, and part of what that means is that like Buddha, Buddha nature is not a thing that you can use, right? And that's why it's, it's useless in the sense that um, it's not a thing we can objectify. And so it's not something we can reach towards, right? Or, or even something that we can reach away from because that's assuming it's a thing that's distinct from us in some sense. So that's why I say Buddhism in, in the sense sort of uh, referring to Buddha nature is basically useless. Interesting. Yeah, it definitely came through, I'd say, uh, in, in your words that uh, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. This is probably a grace or, or uh, something that uh, op- opens us up to what uh, Buddhism is, is really about. And I mean, all this language is, is problematic. So flipping it as, as a sort of poetic device away from always emphasizing the, the good, the, the substantial, these, these sorts of classic habits of mind that certainly we have as, as Westerners, but uh, uh, many Buddhists uh, do as well. Yeah, very, very interesting to, to uh, see this approach. Actually, what you just said, uh, I just want to quickly say, what you just said also made me, made me think of or remember another motivation I do have, which is that I, I do see that. I, I think that the way that Eastern spirituality in general has been sort of transmitted to the to the West is, and from what I see, has, has a very characteristically positivistic bent to it and or positive bent to it. But there's a, there's a diminishment, I think, or I've seen in, in sort of the more, what we can say the negative aspects in, in terms of analysis and deconstruction and, and, and all of these things. And so I guess part of what part of what I want to do in this essay and some of my other work is to, I guess, use a strategy of tactical nihilism as a way to sort of counteract the perhaps eternalistic use of Buddhism, reception of Buddhism in the West, you know, which is understandable if, you know, ex-Christians might, might still have some, you know, prevailing uh, latent assumptions that they still haven't gotten rid of um, in their atheistic phase, which they bring along in their interpretation of Buddhism. And that takes this sort of pseudo-theistic bent, right? So, so a lot of my other work and as well as essay is, you know, trying to go against a bit of this current by, by deploying this more tactically nihilistic um, language. Right. Yeah. Seems seems a, like a, a worthwhile project in light of the interesting ways uh, Buddhism has uh, been received in in uh, America, but other par- parts of the Western world uh, as well. Uh, putting it in a more uh, <laughs> neutral way there. Yeah, I, I was wondering, uh, is is this essay also implicitly going against this this notion that, oh, Buddhism or Eastern spirituality in general is so useful? Oh, we can improve our wellness and, and be more productive uh, workers, uh, mm. this kind of mick mindfulness uh, phenomenon that uh, people have have started to uh really notice uh, in, in recent times. Is, is that uh, part of the project here as well, would you say? Yes, definitely. I've, I've mentioned um, earlier in my introduction of how Marx um, and the Marxist tradition definitely informs a great deal of how I understand things. And so there's definitely this sort of um, 
you know, sort of critical critique of mindfulness that is definitely in the background in the sense of, in the sense that part of the way that Buddhism and, and Buddhist techniques have been appropriated by the West is through this, through this productivist mentality that we can make use of these different things to acquire meritorious results, uh, merits and, and values in, in, in economic and productive life. And which for me, it sort of starts to just be a way in which Buddhism is used to re-entrenched and, uh, and restabilize, you know, samsaric existence rather than going beyond it. And so definitely part of the interest also behind the idea that Buddhism is useless is to sort of also undercut this idea that, that Buddhism can be deployed for any kind of mundane uh, result, which isn't to say it doesn't offer that, but a lot of the sort of yogic techniques and, uh, and sort of meditative techniques that you find in Buddhism, you can also find in other traditions. What, what really distinguishes, I think, Buddhism or the Buddha Dharma from other forms of thinking and being um, is, is the, the particular kind of perspective it takes on. We, we call this the, the view in Dzogchen, not particularly an intellectual view, but a, a kind of mode of awareness or disposition that conditions how we actually use the techniques that are given to us. Um, the techniques are not, you know, um, value neutral in that sense either. One of the other things I was kind of wondering in, in response to this piece is who, who exactly are the Buddhists uh, that you are oh. taking aim at? Certainly, I can imagine these types of Western Buddhists, these kinds of uh, Stephen Batchelor style, post-metaphysical uh, Buddhism 2.0. This, this sort of perspective uh, seems really ripe for, for that uh, critique. But I'm wondering also, is, is a traditional Buddhist someone you have in mind here? Or is it a more specific uh, kind of Western Buddhist that you're taking aim at? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. I definitely say both. So one of the interesting things I think with the sort of secular Buddhist sort of movement is that I actually think there's a sentiment to to it that I think is is noble, which is this idea of like really trying to get to the core of the Buddhist teachings and the core of the Buddhist meanings and trying to extrapolate what is essential to the Dharma that's not just, you know, um, a contingent product of historical um, conditions, you know, mediated by power structures, economic systems that might even get in the way of real dharma transmission and, and such. So I understand that. But I think that this sort of pick cherry picking form of elimination that they choose just ends up sort of distorting it even more. Uh, and I think, so for me, it's to say Buddhism is basically useless. It's sort of like taking the secular Buddhist intent and saying, and saying, okay, well, you think rebirth in karma is useless, but everything else in Buddhism is, is useful. Well, actually everything is in Buddhism is useless. It's, it's, you're not, you're not going, you, the process of negation has not gone far enough in, in this sense. And on the flip side with the traditionalist, I find that I do have a few sort of traditionalist oriented friends. Sometimes I think they have a kind of extreme reaction to the way that Buddhism is characterized in the West, particularly in secular Buddhism. But I feel like a lot of times I think this just more so reflects not so of a concern of what the proper way of doing Buddhism is as so much as it is a concern over uh, sort of losing this fundamental eternal core of the, of the dharma that's that's you know fundamentally based in karma and rebirth and all that and, and all these things and i think in, in both senses you have this fetishization of buddhism and, and the buddhist teachings as something 
I guess like bo- both senses, they're, they're sort of attached to Buddhism as a, as a, as a way of identifying in, in a certain way that allows them to ground themselves with, with, with a certain kind of stability in, in a world of constant flux. In many ways, I think the biggest danger to Buddhism is Buddhism itself. Once you've created an identity around not having an identity, you're you're stuck <laughs> forever. In, in, a, in a way, uh, it sort of parallels a lot what what um, some some people say in Madhyamaka literature, um, particularly Nagarjuna too, when you know there's no saving the one who is a completely misunderstood emptiness. In, in a way, actually trying not to understand emptiness is better than misunderstanding it. So for me, it's like you know. Buddhism, it's it's all or nothing, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I think here of all sorts of different spiritual folks who believe they have transcended the ego. These are the people who, in terms of the ego, are stuck uh, the the hardest because uh, they they've conceptualized being beyond uh, in a way that. Yeah, it, it it reifies some some concepts and some experiences and uh, situates uh, self in 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 a way that that Buddhism is is in its traditional formulations really trying to cut cut right against. And so, yeah, it, it was pretty clear to me that uh, your critique here could be leveled against uh, both the the traditionalist Buddhists and the more more Western style folks. And it it really made me think uh, in Christianity of this idea of the the Protestant principle that uh, within Protestant Christianity, there's always this aspect of critique uh, against tradition, against uh, new movements that is always coming back to the life of Christ through through the Gospels. And this is sort of this superordinate uh, source or, or principle that Christians can go to as sort of a, a ground for critique of all sorts, uh, and so I, I felt something very similar was was going on in in your essay here. So I'm curious what what uh, what's the principle, what's the 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 ground uh, from which you are making this critique that's cutting both against tradition and uh, more more contemporary forms of uh, Buddhist uh, understanding. Yeah, I think one of the things I was trying to also understand myself through this work, and and that's another thing I should sort of state from this. Um, one of the reasons, one of the yeah reasons behind starting this blog is also to not just write finished products, but in, in a way, these finished products are parts of the process of me thinking. You know, and 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 so th- this is very much also me thinking through things through this essay, then sort of giving my conclusion. So which, and I try not to really fixed down into any ultimate conclusion, but but continuously inquire and question uh, various assumptions that we might have about Buddhism and such. And yeah, so I like that you brought up tradition because it's a really, I think a really great way that we can um, divide these two different um, orientations. And, and what we can say is that the, uh, the bifurcation and the way that Buddhism is being approached um, today, which is a kind of Western-oriented secular approach, which also has its roots in the modernist Buddhist movement in Asia, but you know we can put that aside for now. Um, and the and the more traditionalist, um, you know, Asian um, view, um, and especially a lot of my friends who are take who do take the traditional side do tend to be from Buddhist families or from Asia, so it's very understandable. So the Westerners, you know, they take this characteristic, you know, Western approach, which is asserting your individuality against tradition. And sort of the autonomy of the individual is a really important principle, I think, to, you know, Western liberal society. 
Whereas in, in, in the East, the sentiment is very much seeing yourself as part of an undivided continuum, a kind of greater social body that weaves through generations. But what I really like about Buddhism, when, you know, when, when I think genuinely um, experienced and understood, um, as well as Whitehead, is this understanding that the individual and the collective are you know, inseparable from one another and that both are actually the conditions for each other's flourishing. And so any abstraction of one from the other is doomed um, in some way or another to either incoherence um, or suffering you know, or usually both. Jay, I've been stealing your podcast here. Do you want to uh, hop in with something? When I, when I read your essay, I began to picture three people, three kinds of people. And type one was a person, not a Buddhist, who heard the doctrine of Anatman, no self, said, well, interesting idea, but I don't think it's for me. I'm going to get on with my life. And the second person was a self-identified Buddhist who really liked the idea of an Anatman, and for that matter, kind of keen on being a Buddhist too, thought that was a pretty great thing, and was attached to the your wonderful phrase, the magisterium of Buddhist teachings <laughs> and, and the identity of being a Buddhist, and they were kind of objects of clinging. So that was type two. And then type three was, it was surprising to me, but I really liked it. It was a, a person who, in your language, actually touched, you use the word touch so often, touched a deeper side of, of, of their lives and had a kind of sense of awakening to that, that totality and, and did so without the um, defensiveness of the first or the spiritual pride of the second. But then it seems to me, Kazi, you were kind of even more sympathetic to type one than type two. And so as I read your essay, I think you really like these people that touch. <laughs> and, and then you were, you're, you're kind of sympathetic to those people that would resist the idea, but you said it kind of wasn't their fault. <laughs> And then you were kind of, you know, a little tougher on those self-identified Buddhists full of spiritual pride. But I, I liked the whole thing. And so one question I, I want to raise, I've I got a couple of questions. One is, tell me more about what you mean by touching. And, and that's, that's question one. And then I do have another question, a follow-up to that. Uh, but go ahead with that, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. So specifically, I refer to touching yourself, and yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, if, if it's if it's not obvious, it definitely should bring up ideas of masturbation. I'll say that like specific, like you know, right off the bat, and which is actually you know something that a few people picked up on specifically and. Uh, you know, put out such unfounded judgments about the essay just because they isolated that particular meaning. Uh, yeah. But um, which I'm I'm happy they got that meaning. But you know, it's not the full meaning, of course. Otherwise, the essay won't make any sense. And so I'm playing with this sort of triple meaning of mm. of touching yourself in the sense of at the, the, there's like a crude level, coarse level, and then there's like a middle level, and then it's in the subtlest level. The coarsest level is just masturbation. You know, touching yourself physically, literally. The, the middle is, is just a sort of general, but still uh, significant self-knowledge, you know, really mm -hmm. deep understanding of who you are mm -hmm. and, and, 
and your nature and your, your tendencies, your conditions, your traumas, you know, a really a, a deeper sense of understanding who you are, which I think tends tends to, but not always happen sort of post-adolescence when you're sort mm-hmm. of out, out of, you know, once you're moving into adulthood and then really thinking about like, oh, what is my place in this world? And you start to think more about who you are as a person and, and become more sensitive to that. Um, and then at the final, most subtle level, is you know self-reflexive gnosis, you know the 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 awakened mind itself, which knows itself to be what it is. And for me, there is a sort a sort of continuum that we can draw from masturbation to self-knowledge to self-reflexive gnosis. And and the reason why I say say this is that in, in a sort of strict sense, they all in some way relate to the sense of nakedness, the sense of being without a medium. Uh, getting in the way of yourself, right? It's just sort of direct contact. And for a long time, I've had my uh, like a sort of shameful relationship to masturbation, but it wasn't over time until I really started to sort of come to a sense of who I was in myself. The understanding that being intimate with, with myself was not something to be eschewed or denigrated. And and then it made me think of like, why did I even have that sense of shame in the first place? And and for some reason or another, we're always doing this thing where we're trying to come to ourselves, but we'll do it through some kind of medium. So we'll never actually get back to ourselves in, in that direct sense. And this this might sound kind of kind of weird, but um, so Immanuel Kant. Um, there's some there's some you know there's some I think there are letters. I'm not sure if he actually wrote them in an actual like book or a treatise, but he has some very negative views on masturbation in, in the sense that, if I remember correctly, mas- you masturbate when you surrender your rational faculty that defines you as a, as a human, and so you sort of regress into the animal level. But then for, for his, his philosophy, right, reality can only ever be mediated through the categories of human understanding. And so the reality, which is Kant, right? Kant is a part of reality. Reality is him to, in, in some simplistic way, if we say it like that. Yet he cannot reach the reality of his own self without, without this medium, which, which fundamentally delimits from the very outset, you know, what his whole activity could be. It's not even that his activity is wayward, but the, the categories that condition his experience is from, and from the very beginning. You know, the a priori categories fundamentally condition how experience can happen. And I think there's also this interesting connection between the out, the external noumena and the and the subjective noumena as as both being noumena. And I think this this sort of points to the sense of like um, how there's this understanding that there is a place where self and other contact in an indivisible reality in a kind of noumenal reality, but it can never be accessed without the mediation of the human understanding that gives rise to the phenomenal world. And for the Buddhist, this structure this a priori structure of, 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 of experience is precisely what is to be negated in the realization of emptiness, resulting in a direct contact, a, a direct naked experience with your own condition. And so I still haven't really made the, in my own head this connection between the, the sort of this thinking and this, and, and you know, what we do day to day with master in our daily lives, you know, but I think it just it just goes to show that, you know, how we think reflects how we are and how we are reflects how we think. And so this is here the connection. And so I, I see that in, in a way people who might have aversion to truly being in touch with the reality of themselves also would be weirdly averse to physically pleasuring themselves. 
So self-knowledge is definitely a kind of nice medium between physical self-contact and spiritual self-contact. It's part of the necessary process of moving from the coarse to the subtle levels of self-touching, you know, touching yourself. I guess another thing I should mention is that particularly my tradition, you know, based on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, it's in, in many ways, I wouldn't necessarily say it's sex positive, but it definitely sees the potentials within, you know, sexual encounter, sexual union as a, as a basis for realization. So, so my use of my reference to, to sexuality is not, um, you know, I think foreign entirely to, to this Buddhist sentiment, though, though I haven't really seen much about masturbation. So, so uh, sexual tantra, obviously, typically involves a, a practitioner and the consort is also the practitioner. So union of two but at the same time, especially in the figure of the, the Yabiyum, the, the, the sort of divine couple, Samantha Bajra and Samantha Bajri, in, in, a, in sort of a sexual union, in a way, from the, from the perspective of the Dharma Dhatu, you know, the sphere of ultimate reality, they're both empty. So they're sort of the same thing, you know. So it's kind of sex, which is also auto-sexual self-relation in that sense, something akin to masturbation. Yeah, I appreciate that. And Actually, when I when I heard when I read the word touching, I I didn't think of masturbation, but I did think of the third meaning, the kind of deep self knowledge. But I see the continuum that you're talking about, and I want to uh, put that in Whiteheadian terms, just for the fun of it. And so, in process and reality, we are moments of experience, moment by moment. That that's who we are and what we are. In every moment of experience is, is a process of, of the many becoming one and then being increased by one. And that process isn't just something mechanical that you look at from the outside, from a third person perspective. Subjectively, it's a process of feeling. We, we feel the presence of our bodies and the surrounding world and the heavens and the hills and rivers. They are the many that become one in every moment. And Part of that process in ordinary waking consciousness involves a whole lot of conceptuality, conceptual prehensions, which can help us integrate the gathering into unity, but also filter it almost in those Kantian terms. But every moment of experience actually begins, thinks Whitehead, with what he calls experience in the mode of causal efficacy. That's the phrase he uses. It's the experience of being moved by something. And his primary example in processing reality is bodily experience. And, and two or three times in process and reality, he, he uses the phrase, the withness of the body, W-I-T-H, withness of the body. So our experience always begins with, I mean, you could argue, it always begins with our, our body, <laughs> And he also has a little phrase in process reality where he says, but where does the body end? <laughs> is the skin its contours? And in dialogue, well, I think it's with Descartes. He says something like, actually, the whole world is my body. The whole world is mine. That's the way he puts it. So that's how I would link that kind of deep self-knowledge of what you're, you're, you're speaking with intimacy with the body. And a falling away of conceptualities that ordinarily filter that. And, and if you imagine a, a state of consciousness in which that really happens, 
it's not just an idea I'm sharing. You know, you, you actually experience that. Right, right. There would be a, a dropping away of a sense of an isolated individual and a dropping away of concepts and a kind of strange kind of awareness of, how to put it, uh, holopoiesis. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, that would, that's how I would read what you're saying. And if that misrepresents it, forgive me. But if it illuminates a little bit of it, great. But then I want to ask a question, another question, if I could. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm reading your essay and I'm, I'm, I'm getting that, what, what do you call it? The negativity, the technical nihilism. What, what, what's the phrase you uh, use? T- tactical nihilism. Tactical nihilism. You know, I'm, I'm getting that spirit, you know, no to this, no to that, no to this, no to that, no to this. And then all of a sudden I come up on this paragraph and I think, where does this come from? I'll read it to you. May the infinite loving compassion and boundless luminous vision of the uncountable multiplicity of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who pervade every duration of time and every extent of space in the entire manifold cosmos secretly conspire to lure, oh, there's that whitehead word, the Buddhist, to the unobstructed awakening of the indestructible heart of his selfless self. And I thought, this is almost devotional. <laughs> this is devotional. And, and it's really quite, kind of beautiful. Uh, it is beautiful. And it was such a nice contrast, actually, with, with what came before. I thought, ooh. But I do, t- I do want to tell you what I wonder. And this has a little something to do with maybe the, the Zen in me. You know what koans are in the Rinzai tradition. And here's one famous koan. A student of the way asked Yunmen, what is Buddha? Yunmen replied, dried shit stick. That's it. So the monk comes up to the Yunman and says, what is the Buddha? And he says, a dried shit stick. And there's another koan that kind of goes like that. What is the Buddha? It's three pounds of flax. And what's going on in those koans? It's a prodding to get the monk to get out of his or her head, most were he's, out of his head into the immediacy of the present moment. So throw away all the holy slogans. Throw away all the advanced rhetoric. Throw away all the ideals. Throw away the very idea of the holy. Get over purity. So here's my question. Do you think that sometimes language such as the indwelling, indestructible heart of perfect awakening, that is the essence of mind itself, can itself become an object of grasping and thus undercut the very heart of the Buddha way? Because I kind of saw your bottom line, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I kind of saw your bottom line as Deep within us, there's this luminous wisdom and amorous splendor. And that's almost eternal. And, and the, the Zen in me wanted to say, no, no. You know what's inside us? A dried shit stick. <laughs> in other words, don't cling, don't cling, don't cling. Okay. Any response, any thoughts on your part? 
Yeah, thank, thank you for all those um, comments and observations. Um, I will say I, I, I really like what you did mention about the emphasis on causal efficacy or, mm-hmm. or perception in the mode of causal efficacy in mm-hmm. Whitehead and this sort of preconceptual, almost yeah. even precognitive state right, of, yeah. of right. just pure immersion in, in, right. in, the, in the sheer force of the past and all the actualities in that. And the, yeah, there's this kind of the fullness in there uh, where the self almost hasn't had a chance to fully crystallize and so it's sort of indivisible with everything outside of itself and so it's almost like this contact with the other but the other's not there it's also a self-contact so I definitely really like that Um, especially because for me there's definitely a sense in which this self-reflexive gnosis is also sort of primordially present in a sense that it's always not just you know, what we lost with conceptuality, but kind of always beside conceptuality. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like conceptuality is almost a distortion of it, right? So um, it's sort of almost there, but it's also there immediately prior to our conceptualizing and our evaluating. And so so it's always there. And so I I really like that connection. And thank Mm -hmm. you for bringing that up. And especially as like, you know, from a Marxian angle, I I like it whenever there's an emphasis on the soma, the body in in process of philosophy, because I I guess this is something I can't throw off, I guess, because of my involvement in in, in Marxist thought, but we we tend to have this sort of like uh, suspicion of anything that might tend towards idealism for for any particular way. So I love it whenever Whitehead still grounded in in, in the somatic experience and bodily experience, which I think is, is really key and it's precisely what is lost in idealism, right? Mm -hmm. The importance of the body. Yeah. So you mentioned the sort of positive language I start using towards the end of this and how there is definitely the risk of, you know, getting attached to this kind of, um, these ideas and views as well. You know, may, may, I say, may I jump in just really quickly there? I really think you can be attached to the negative as well as the positive. I mean, a, a person can. And so I really love language and I love both kinds. And I'm aware of the fact that precisely because such language can be so lovable, both the technical nihilism and the uh, devotional extravagance, they're fine. It's the attachment thereunto that I think becomes the problem. Yeah, typically what I sort of do is, or in order to um, you know maintain this sort of uh, middle way equipoise, I guess you could say in my writing is, so, so some of my essays has, has a more of a kind of emotional devotional character to it, mm-hmm. uh, a more sort of emphasis, I guess, what you could say on the dependently originated luminosity of experience. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of really goes towards that. So my other writing more so emphasizes the emptiness aspect, the the sort of the the nihility of our conceptions of of things as being eternal. And the way I try to make sure I don't veer off too much in either direction is to have a little bit of the other Mm -hmm. present. So so if you um, if you go to my website and click on the about section where I go over the holopoesis, there is a section when, in which I and I point to the inability to abstract a whole on as as really existing in any way. That uh-huh. actually, yeah. that actually, when you when you look at a whole on, when you really look at it, there's actually nothing there because it's mm-hmm. indivisible from the continuum it's, it's embedded in. And, and so, in, in, in Buddhism, is basically useless. You know, I go through all this negativity and then add a little positive aspect in it and as a as a possible as a way to balance but not just to balance but more so to sort of 
throw something like a koan to the yeah. to the reader so yeah. they can be like okay wait but you just destroyed everything and then all of a sudden now you're you're basically telling me you're a buddhist but you said buddhism is useless and i think you could either think that i'm just um a contradictory crazy person and dismiss me that's fine or you can try to you know try to understand what i'm doing and see that there might not actually be a, a huge difference between the two and that this apparent difference is what I exploit for, you know, aesthetic purposes and and, 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 a, and a way to sort of make, almost force the reader to, you know, keep thinking along with me. Because I, I think, you know, I, I have a tendency to think that our minds, possibly because of our Buddha nature, our minds are innately sort of tends towards resolution to some extent. And actually this this desire for resolution, I think is also sort of what brings us in suffering too, because this desire for resolution can also manifest in the desire to, you know, have things go your way. But even the the, the, the sort of path of dealing with and understanding and overcoming suffering is this sort of path of resolving as well. And so I find that if I add paradoxical seemingly contradictory elements to my work, hopefully I sort of catalyze this process in the in the reader's mind, which is already innately predisposed to resolution, to hopefully work with me to resolve this apparent contradiction so that I can basically point to the dependently originated nature of both positivity and negativity, that, that, that both are just sort of different ways of approaching the same thing, which is incomprehensible and inexpressible in, in, in those linguistic terms. But also another reason why I wanted to include masturbation as like a, a touching yourself thing is because in some senses, you know, from a certain kind of perspective, you can think of it as one of the most basest things you can do. You know, Kant will, it literally thinks it's probably one of the most basest animalistic things a human can do. But I love that because it shows that it's perhaps one of the most pervasive ways in which this seed of self-reflexive gnosis is, is, is experienced by everyone who you know and, and i feel like I so. pretty much so. most people masturbate i think uh i, I if they probably try to hide it too or at some point in their life you know but that, that's probably just my my biased perspective but all just to say that um that i i also want to to also not just point to the you know sublime and exalted nature of the mind as you know this unity of luminous mm-hmm. wisdom and amorous splendor but also it's, it's so basic as as just masturbating you mm-hmm. know you know it's it's and so maybe that's my version of the dried shit stick you know it's just like awakening is kind of like masturbation to some extent um it's just this direct touching with yourself and and in a way and i also like the idea that masturbating is apparently selfish and and not you know it's not involved with someone else it's a sort of self-relation but at the same time ironically i find that people who are okay with themselves and to so that they can okay with touching with themselves and being comfortable with that or even the fact that people do it i think they're predisposed to also just be more compassionate and understanding of other people's bodily desires and stuff too i don't think it's a coincidence that people who might have a negative view of masturbation will have a pretty you know negative or mean acidic disposition to those who do it or the idea of doing it and and so Kant's whole text on that is a great example of that so you know about irresolution uh, an interesting dimension of of Whitehead's philosophy is that here's here's the phrase he uses completion is the perishing of immediacy 
And what that means is in, in every moment of experience, there's an aim at completion. There's a subjective aim to, to gather the many into one in a single experiential gestalt. And it, it's, uh, it aims at satisfaction. That's the word, exactly the word he uses. And in processing reality, satisfaction equals intensity. That's the term he uses. So every moment is an aim at intensity. And intensity is satisfying. That's all whitehead. But interestingly enough, as soon as there's satisfaction, the immediacy perishes and something comes after that. So there's no finality. There's no finality. On the one hand, it cuts against that eros toward finality. You know, this is it. I've arrived. But he had that, he had a need for finality too. And so that's where you find his discussion of peace in Adventures of Ideas. That there is a kind of harmony, he, he thought, that can be directly experienced. And that's his word, harmony. And he actually speaks of it as a harmony of harmonies. And it transcends personality. And it's, it's actually, he calls it the consummation of the human soul. That's in his book, uh, In Adventures of Ideas, the last chapter. So anyway, I hear all that when I hear luminous wisdom and amorous splendor. I hope you don't give up on I know it's empty and all that, but, <laughs> but I think there's some wisdom in the in the, in the language too. Well, fundamentally, I think um, it, it's interesting. There, there's the, the two truths, right? There's emptiness and dependent mm -hmm. origination, but there's also the way in which one side of the two truths also collapses both of them, right? So, oh. from the side of emptiness, there's not even any two truths. So, what you think is is nihilistic actually when take it to its logical end is mm. absolutely inseparable from the dependently mm. originated matrix of all experience it's it's mm. this undivided continuum but the mind can't help but decide on one one side of this infinitely spinning coin it, it mm. needs it needs a stasis and so for for me i think if we're going to talk at all we can we can talk in these Koanic ways, these paradoxical, contradictory ways, aesthetic ways. You know, one of the things I really love about Whitehead is this emphasis on his thesis as like the basis from which we do our philosophy and the thing that our philosophy is about. You know, our philosophy is not about final ultimate truths, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's about the evocation of intensities. I think mm -hmm. um, the mm -hmm. Whitehead used somewhere, which which I really love. Mm -hmm. I have a bit of a question for you, actually. Uh, it seems like you couldn't really consider Whitehead a teleological thinker, but there's something like a telos going on. So could you, could you um, speak to that anyway? Well, I think he, he is a teleological thinker in, okay. in several ways, but not a, not a telos that's arrived at after which there's no more process. There's not that kind of telos. But there's telos at several other levels. In human life, every moment is a teleological act. You're trying to understand right now. I am too. You're seeking satisfaction in this conversation. I am too. Let's be honest. You know, we have subjective aims. That's his phrase. That's part of life, part of experience. So that's teleological. I think in his understanding of, of God, that's in part five of process and reality. Uh, there's a, an important sense in which God is a cosmic lure toward intense becoming. And, and that cosmic lure is present everywhere throughout the universe. And it's also in us. And so as we open ourselves to 
the wideness we experience within ourselves an indwelling lure toward fullness. And so the telos of the universe is also inside each one of us, but it's more than any of us or even all of us added together. And he uses the word God for to name God means a lot of things in Whitehead. God is also a companion, like a bodhisattva, a cosmic right. bodhisattva, Guan Yin, who, who, who sh- shares in the sufferings of each and all in, in deep compassion. That's what he calls the consequent nature of God. And the primordial nature of God is he, we experience as that lure toward becoming. So they're both, both there. He, he knew, of course, that the word God can mean different things to different people. And so in processing reality, he was very critical of notions of God as kind of a, a totalitarian ruler. His quip is, the church wrongly rendered unto God that which belonged to Caesar. It wrongly did that. It rendered unto God that which belonged to Caesar. So he's deeply critical of politicized understandings of, of the divine, particularly if they lean toward totalitarianism or complete control or that kind of thing. But he was himself quite drawn. He grew up in a Christian background. He was quite quite drawn to, to Jesus, not as the son of God like that, but he thought Jesus was about love. And so he speaks of the witness of, of Jesus as bespeaking um, the tender elements in the world that in quietness and operate by love. And he said that side of God is a a little oblivious as to morals. That's a direct quote. So this side of God is not a moralist. This side of God is on the side of life. And life involves play, you know, and all kinds of things besides being good. He thinks the universe itself is always beckoned by beauty. Uh, Experience God is a lure toward beauty. So beauty and intensity kind of go together for him. And they go together with the notion of contrast, which you used earlier, you know, and that's actually one of his um, eight categories of existence and process and reality is what kinds of things exist and prehensions do, actual entities do, subjective forms do, eternal objects do. That's another issue. But contrast, and they were fundamental to life. Contrast did not necessarily mean conflict. Uh-huh. It could also mean complementarity, but you need the both end. I will say, um, as uh, in art school studying Whitehead, I did re- really hone in on this concept of contrast, yeah. and, and it really did actually help my own practice, because before I was sort of looking at different parts of a conceptual opposition sort of independently, but yeah. then once, once yeah. I understood that actually putting them together and working them together in these interesting contradictory paradoxical ways, con- you- contrasting ways and new ways of, uh, you know, approaching everything. And yeah, you know, I, I love that about him. Well, rightly so. I mean, you, you honed in on, on something very important to him and I'm glad that it helped you too. Uh, so both in process and reality in that book and in adventures of ideas in that book, that's where you will find Whitehead developing a bit of an aesthetic, I see. a philosophy of aesthetics. And it's going to work on contrast. The basic point is in seeking beauty, we can smother the details in the interest of some broad stroke. And, and that becomes a problem. But we can also be so overwhelmed with details that we forget the broad strokes. 
that can also be a problem. So it's how to balance a sense of particularity and difference with a recognition of, of the coalescence of the many. And the contrasts actually enhance the differences. So it's like in the yin-yang diagram in, you know, in China, the black really in, enhances the white and the white enhances the, the darkness and, and it, they fold into one another. So that notion that differences are enhanced by contrast, very important to him, not eliminated. Yeah, and I think from the, from the Buddhist point of view, I guess something is eliminated, but what's eliminated is the idea that they're strictly opposed. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, which for the Buddhists, like, has to be accounted for because we do have this innate predisposition to 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 want to grasp onto these these ideas. And what I've been finding also from from a Buddhist point of view, in, in many ways, like I, I find Western thinkers might move towards dialectical modes of thinking as a way mm -hmm. to go beyond sort of dichotomies, but which is, you know, interesting and a lot of productive thought has come out of this sort of the dialectical train of, of thinking. But even even from, from a very strict Buddhist point of view too, it's like even, even for there to be a dialectic between pairs, you would have to have bifurcated the pairs in the first place. Yeah, so, yeah. so a dialectic is just sort of this ad hoc synthesis of a bifurcation that was never resolved in the, in the beginning. You know, we don't ex we, we we lack language here, because a, a little earlier you and I, I myself you used the phrase immersion in the whole, uh, or something to that effect. Immersion in the totality of the past in the process of immediate experience, and I would have used exactly that word too. But that can suggest that there's a something separate from the whole that can <laughs> right. be immersed into it. Right. And it's yeah. very hard to find very language that, that avoids that that kind of assumption. And I kind of think that in a way language, we, we can never avoid that in language. And so that's maybe what we have to use language in these indirect ways, these um, yeah, poetical, so. poetic ways, analogical ways, yeah. um, uh, apophatic ways. And that way we sort of don't fool ourselves in, in the in sort of impossible mission of expressing the inexpressible yeah. and, and just play with the fact that the, it, it, and if, if the if the expression is self-reflexively aware of the inexpressibility of what it's expressing, then I think it's innocent. Um, if if you know, if it can give give that off well enough, it's not trying to convince you that it actually has what it's saying. Because mm -hmm. you know, an, a metaphor doesn't pretend to be anything other than a metaphor, yeah. un unless the metaphor user uses it differently. But that would be improper use. You know what we should do, Kasi. I don't know if we'll ever talk again, but. I've really enjoyed this. Hopefully. I, 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 need to, I need to go myself. But I would love to have this very same discussion using visual art. In other words, everything that we've just said about language and metaphor and the like and the limits of language and the need for paradox, I would like to hear that same discussion with images. Because I think we, I lean toward the verbal. I'm, I'm thinking about language. That, you know, I'm thinking about words. And I'd also like it with sound, by the way. Let's go music. <laughs> yeah, no, music is, a, is an amazing medium to understand these, all these topics as well, you know, in terms of uh, in, indirectly expressing the inexpressible. I, I wanted to ask you something right there. Uh, back to touching just for a second. I, I began to wonder when people do touch their bodies or the mystery or the depths or, you know, whatever we want to say, the luminous 
wisdom and amorous splendor. I wonder if music, if sometimes music isn't an occasion for that, if that absorption into music as well as the body isn't an opening into the, the wideness. So varieties of touching, that's your next essay. <laughs> no, that's a, a very nice suggestion. I, I definitely like that. Actually, um, over the pandemic, for the first time, I actually picked up an instrument. I oh, did you? Um, yeah, I first I started with an acoustic guitar. I played it for two weeks, and I was like, "This is absolutely amazing." I'm uh-huh. gonna get get myself an electric guitar ASAP. So I did, <laughs> and then I fell. I discovered surf rock, and I lo- fell in love with mm-hmm. it. And I've been trying to play play it, but in the process, I had this new uh, um, appreciation for not just music but sound as a physical yeah. phenomenon in general. And and before I was, you know, unfortunately naively listening to music almost as like a kind of information processing machine, right? Mm-hmm. It's like goes in, I hear it, I like it or I don't like it, and then mm-hmm. off. But actually playing a physical instrument mm. and fe- feeling the vibrations reverberating, mm. but not just that, but being able to actually feel like I was literally mm. like almost taking the, the feelings out of my body into the music. It's, mm. it's hard to describe. I'm sure as a musician, you of course understand, but it, it, it definitely is a different form of putting yourself out there. And it, and it has, I mean, yeah, I just understand completely. It, it has something to do with vibrations and a lot to do with touch. I mean, the very touch of the fingers on the strings and the fact that sound comes from that and different sounds is just kind of gorgeous. Yeah, and then, and another thing, once I have this interesting experience is, you know, after uh, a good session of, of, of my sadhana, in my, my meditation practice, I go over to my guitar to sort of play some tunes and learn a surf rock song. And then I started studying surf rock a little bit and the history mm-hmm. behind it while listening. And then I started feeling this weird, like, I don't know, like almost mystical experience of this connection to this time period in the 60s and the 70s and in, in the shores of California, as if like I was there, you know, and this, <laughs> this, this, this power of, of sound and music to transmit the past is amazing. And it's, it's not even just a conceptual thing, but like, the, the, the physical vibrations of the sound and the guitar is, if not, exa- it's not going to be the exact same thing, of course. Every performance is different, but the, at least the logic and structure is the same. And it is sort of a way that harkens back to this moment in which those sounds were first conceived. Yeah. And it was just a beautiful experience. And, and I don't know why it, just, it took me so long to start playing my own music, but I'm glad I started. Oh, I am too. I am too. I, I need to go, and I want to let you two visit a little bit, but it's it's great to be with, with both of you. So peace be with everybody. See you, see you next time. Conversations in Process is a podcast from Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute, hosted by Jay McDaniel. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to support the show, consider becoming a friend of the Cobb Institute or making a donation at cobb.institute. Or leave a review through Apple Podcasts to help others find out about the show. Thank you for listening.